This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on July 8th, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast... When we were thinking about the new introduction of kind of plug-in cars, so we got to thinking, well, how are they going to get their power? You know, when you plug them into this outlet, kind of what's on the other end of that outlet? That's Scientific American editor Michael Moyer, who will talk about his feature in the July issue on where plug-in electric vehicles' power really comes from. And editor-in-chief Mariette DeCristina talks about some of the other articles in the new July issue. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, Michael and Mariette. The three of us sat down in the new recording studio at the Scientific American offices on July 6th. Mariette, before we talk about the July issue, you just got back from Lindau. I just got back from the Nobel laureate meetings at Lindau. These meetings were begun 60 years ago, and this was the 60th anniversary of them. And the sole purpose of them is to bring Nobel laureates together, and there were about 60 of them this year, with young scientists, so roughly in their 20s, let's say, who have already begun publishing um, various pieces of research, and to give those young scientists encouragement. And they came this year from 72 different countries all around the world, they are they go through a kind of a rigorous process to be filtered through their their country's um, candidate systems and then the Lindau people accept a certain number as many as they can accommodate this year it was more than 600 young scientists and i got to tell you the passion of these young people and the brilliance these are some of you know in 5 years we'll be seeing their names in the headlines i'm convinced was just so completely amazing and refreshing. It was it was great to see the you know the flow of of science expertise from the Nobel level down to these folks and and vice versa. So all these young researchers get their own Nobel Prize winning mentors for a couple of days. Actually, how it works, there's a lot of mentoring going around, but it is not as formal as that. The young scientists can decide in the afternoons what sessions they want to attend with which laureates, and I was privilege to be able to do some of that as well. And in the morning, they have plenary sessions where everybody's together. In the afternoons, they get really focused time where the young researchers can ask the laureates what they think. And at one point, through um, through a panel that was run by our colleagues at the Nature Publishing Group, we let the, the Loma laureates ask the young scientists questions in turn, which was really fun. Were the uh, the youngsters kind of nervous about that? I would imagine they. Were. I got to tell you, none of the scientists that I saw, the young scientists, seemed to be nervous about anything. All they all uniformly expressed was a real love of what they were doing, and a real belief in the idea of exploring the world through science and the value of that. And you know. Another thing I should mention about this, Steve, is for, for these young scientists, this is a once-in-a-lifetime experience unless they, in turn, win a Nobel Prize someday right. <laughs> along the line. So, you know, I felt doubly humble and privileged to be among such company. And if there's anybody listening who's in graduate school or doing a postdoc or early faculty uh, position in their career and they wanted to try to do this, do you know how to, they could do it? I think the fastest thing for anybody – 
to do would be to go to the Lindau site. And if you just go to Google and you type in Lindau Nobel Laureate Meetings, it'll pop right up and it'll tell you how to go about looking into it at various countries. Wow, very cool. So let's talk about the July issue of Scientific American. We have an article called How Babies Think. Right, so we're going to go from Nobel Laureates and how they think to the tiniest among us or as as Horton the Elephant said in Dr. Seuss, a person, uh, you know, a person's a person no matter how small. And indeed, that is the big lesson about how babies think. Although they're tiny little people, they are not tabula rasa or bl- blank slate, as we once upon a time thought. They are instead, speaking of little young scientists, they are mini scientists. And in fact, the author of this article, Alison Gopnik at the University of California, wrote a book a few years ago called The Scientist in the Crib, and that is what they are. They they experiment with the world, they observe through either statistical analysis or cause and effect, and they learn an amazing amount of stuff. Just because they're not telling you, because they're not verbal yet, does not mean they are not absorbing. Yeah, there's some really fascinating experiments described in the article that illustrate the fact that these little babies do have a statistical understanding of their environment. Like there's the one with the the different colored balls in a box. Right. I I love this experiment. Um, Of course, any parent – I'll tell you about that in one second – but any parent won't be surprised to hear this. Anybody who's seen a a child in a high chair who drops a spoon – and then watches in delight as the parents rush after that spoon time and time again, knows that children very quickly learn cause and effect. But the surprise was that they also can do a kind of statistical analysis. And what do we mean by that? We don't mean that they are doing heavy-duty math in their heads. Right, they're not figuring out standard deviations. (laughs) But an eight-month-old, for instance, who is looking at a box of, of balls, let's say they're mostly white balls, and there are a few red balls in that box, If the experimenter keeps taking out red ball after red ball, the baby will notice this. And with babies, of course, because they're not verbal, the way you notice, the way they know, the way they express that they know something is not quite right is they really stare at it and they look really surprised, Um, even, you know, sort of cocking their head a little bit sometimes. How does that happen? And so if I'm the experimenter and I have a box of mostly white balls and a few red balls and I keep grabbing red ball after red ball, the baby will stare and show you that, hey, that doesn't, that, that is probably not right. Something weird is going on here. And so the baby understands in a rudimentary way um, the statistics of those balls. Right, that the, the picks are not being done at random. So, or if they are being done at random, then there's some, something unexpected has happened here. And by the time the baby is, say, 20 months old, that baby can draw an inference. For instance, in another experiment where scientists were playing with yellow and green toys, which I have to tell you, I wish I was doing experiments with babies playing with yellow and green toys sometimes, as fun as it is to be on your podcast, Steve. Um, they, when, a, when, a, when the experimenter kept preferring a particular color, let's say the yellow toy, the baby would eventually realize this. Statistically, the person prefers the yellow toy and try to hand that toy to them. Uh-huh. So, so that, they, they are analyzing, in effect, statistically probability that you would like something by the way that your, your selections had shown beforehand. And there was another really interesting experiment in a similar vein that had to do with food in the article. With the oh, with the broccoli and, and the goldfish. Broccoli, right? Okay, leaving aside the fact that <laughs> broccoli and goldfish, might you might have some in, you know, inner preferences anyway. These are the cracker goldfish. The cracker the goldfish. Actual... Right, not the slippery, right. wet kind. <laughs> so imagine two bowls, one with broccoli in it and one with goldfish. And if the experimenter expresses a preference, let's say smiles, 
when they're eating the goldfish or bites into the broccoli and makes a frowny face, the baby will realize, well, the, the experimenter would really prefer to eat goldfish, and I might prefer those too. I had a similar experience with this with my, my daughter Mallory, who's now nine. When she was a tiny baby, I picked up a particular stuffed elephant toy, and I smiled and I kissed it, and I saw her face lock in on me doing that. She then preferred that elephant to anything else forever. In fact, she still... Now we have two of them because we bought a spare. She still prefers this elephant. She no longer remembers why. Mm -hmm. But she remembered that of all the toys she had, I picked this elephant up and kissed it and handed it to her, and she's never forgotten. And that made it special. With the, with the broccoli and the goldfish, what was really interesting was if the adult professed an interest more in the broccoli, the kid would then – the kid could then give the adult either one and would give the adult the broccoli, not because it was hoarding the goldfish for itself, but because to the kid, it was like, for some reason, this other person likes the broccoli. <laughs> I can't explain it myself to myself, but I know from their behavior that they would really prefer to have the broccoli. But what was also interesting about that was, if uh, if I remember the article correctly, that kind of understanding of the of the um, likes and dislikes of the other person only kicked in at a certain age. The, the, the 14-month-old babies that were tested could not distinguish between what the person, the other person liked and didn't like, but the 18-month-old babies Right, 18 could. to 20 months. Yeah. You're right. You're right. There are certainly stages where sophistication of processing becomes greater. You know, when you're uh, when a baby is learning, for instance, there's something we don't discuss in this article, but it's called object permanence. That's where you maybe hide a, a toy in a box and you close it up. To the baby that is less than eight months old, that toy has just disappeared. It doesn't exist. It never existed. Babies older than eight months understand that that object still exists even though they can't see it. So there are there are certain stages of cognition or cognitive development. And one of the things these experiments do is help us explore how does our cognition evolve, you know, develop over the first few months of life? And what does that say about about our thinking later and how rational or irrational we are, um, just the way we explore the world in general? And if I'm not mistaken, I think that the author, Alison Gopnik, is the sister of the famous New Yorker writer, Adam Gopnik. She is indeed. So uh, it's a pretty well-written article because <laughs> it runs in the family. Uh, let's get Michael Moyer in here for a second. Michael, you're the uh, the author of a infographic and text piece called The Dirty Truth About Plug-In Hybrids. And it's there's some amazing stuff in here that most people probably not only have never heard of but never even considered as as data that they'd input into their car decisions. Why don't you tell us what this two-page spread is all about? Sure. Um, so this story came about uh, kind of when we were thinking about the new introduction of kind of plug-in cars that are becoming this year. You may have heard about the um, the Chevrolet Volt coming out later this year, which is a plug-in hybrid. It's uh, it has a um, a small gasoline engine in it, but it's really just a car powered by an electric motor and a battery, and the, the gasoline engine just kind of works to recharge the battery. You plug it into your your garage at night when you come home, and if you drive for anything less than forty miles during the day. 
um, the uh, the engine never comes on. You just work on electric power. Then early next year, we have the um, the Nissan Leaf coming out, which is all electric, no gasoline engine at all, and that you can go for about a hundred miles in that. So we got to thinking, well, you know, these are great innovations coming out, and they'll help us be greener. But then we got to thinking, well, how are these cars going to get their energy? How are they going to get their power? You know, when you plug them into this outlet, kind of what's on the other end of that outlet? Right. We're not taking in gasoline anymore, but some somewhere the energy has to get processed. That's right. It's not it's not free energy that's kind of coming into these things. And um, we consider that, well, 50 percent of the U.S. energy supply comes from coal right now. And so we kind of looked into it and we found that the some researchers a few uh, – maybe a year or so ago had done a breakdown of region by region in the U.S., California versus Illinois versus New York, kind of what effect these automobiles were going to have on the electricity supply of the U.S. itself. And so let me explain that for uh, – unpack that a little bit. Um, they imagine in 2020, you've got a, a certain number of these cars that are out in, in everyone's garage and, and people are going to plug them in and they're going to have some sort of drain on the electricity supply. And so they, they modeled each one of these regions to kind of see what additional sources of electricity we're going to have to turn on in order to supply these guys. And, and they didn't say, okay, they're going to be pulling energy during peak hours or anything like that. They said, no, let's, let's say, okay, people are, are going to be drawing their electricity at night when demand is lowest and prices conceivably are going to be cheapest. But but even then, there's going to be you know more than would ordinarily be coming out of the, the sockets of you know. And so you're going to have these additional power sources that are going to have to come on. And so what are those power sources going to be? And what they found, somewhat surprisingly, uh, is that it is not our ordinary distribution of electricity. That they found that a lot of, in a lot of cases, um, you're going to uh, uh, have uh, increased they call marginal loads from natural gas and from coal. They found that nuclear sources and uh, renewable energy sources contributed almost nothing to the to the power supply that are going into these cars. Right. So the natural gas and coal are what are being uh, used to create electricity at the power plants. That's right. So ultimately, your car, which doesn't use any gasoline, is being run on coal or natural gas. Yes. Ultimately, that's where that energy is coming from. Your car is going to be run on uh, coal or natural gas uh, in in the vast majority of cases across the U.S. And so what we've done is we then looked at all those different regions and we kind of mapped it out and we, we showed um, for your region how much of your uh, energy is going to come from these different sources, mostly coal and natural gas. And then how will your emissions compare to the driver of an ordinary hybrid, just say an ordinary Toyota Prius, which is a you know, very efficient car? And we found that in about half the regions in the U.S., you're going to be emitting in total about the same amount of carbon dioxide as you would driving an ordinary hybrid if you're using one of these plug-in vehicles. And in some regions, you're going to actually be emitting more carbon That's right. than you would with just a regular old hybrid. That's right. In places such as the upper Midwest and Midwest and Illinois and Ohio and the southeast, they're going to get so much more of their energy from coal that they're going to be – that those cars per mile – Are actually dirtier. Are dirtier. Are dirtier than just a regular, regular old hybrid. hybrid. Now, we don't compare – 
at all to fully internal combustion engine automobiles that run on gasoline. That's right. And in all those cases, uh, we did the analysis. We didn't have the room on the spread to to kind of show that uh, those are those will always be dirtier. Right. According so to it's an improvement analysis. over that, but yeah. it's not necessarily an improvement to have an all-electric vehicle over a hybrid vehicle that does use some gasoline. That's right. For for carbon emissions. Now, a lot of for people emissions, are right. concerned about oil consumption and petroleum consumption. Right. Those become uh, security concerns or uh, global uh, foreign policy concerns, right? You know, uh, deep water drilling in the Gulf of Mexico right. concerns. And for all regions, we found um, that those plug-in vehicles would be using substantially less petroleum in total. Uh, New York is actually the the one kind of outlier there, where New York will get a lot of it, a lot of its marginal capacity from oil-burning power plants. As opposed to natural gas Exactly, as opposed to natural gas I mean, some really surprising data in here. It's a very data-rich couple of pages. But, for example, the thing that really jumped out at me was Texas, which you always think of as, you know, chugga-chugga oil wells all over Texas. The power plants are 100% natural gas. That's right. That's right. The the additional capacity that will come online right. is 100% natural gas for Texas. And you think of chugga-chugga oil wells. You also think Texas is the wind capital of the U.S. right, right. now. But look, these power sources such as wind or solar, they're going to be used – their fuel – is free. It's cheap. So they're ch- churning all the time, nuclear the same way. Um, and so those power plants are going to be always on, no matter if you're, you've got a fleet of electric cars or, or if you don't. So those sources kind of don't count in this analysis. You know, the, the researchers modeled what, what the power supply would be with the fleet of electric cars, and they modeled what the power supply would be without the fleet, and they subtracted one from the other, and that's how we get these numbers. Yeah, it's a really interesting feature, and uh, it might even affect some people's choices about what kind of car to buy in the next few years. I know that I'm still driving a 1992 Honda Civic because I keep figuring if I can only squeeze another couple of years out of it, there might be all these really different new cars available. And uh, and now this article is making me think about about that whole calculus in a whole different way, actually. Yeah, I mean, you know, technology, it's like it's like when do you buy your new your new uh, cell phone, right? right? You know, there's always going to be something better in a year. So um, that 92 Civic, though, Steve, could probably use a, an environmental upgrade. Well, it, the air conditioner doesn't work, so <laughs> I'm saving a lot. I'm being very green about never running the AC. And if you go to our website, there's a big multimedia feature that's related to the the Dirty Truth About Plug-In Hybrids article. That's right. we got a big interactive um, feature where you can kind of click on different regions and explore um, different scenarios. We, Because it's online, we're able to get a lot more data in there, and you can really play with it yourself and kind of uh, uh, drill down to see right where you live and, um, and how it's going to affect you and, and your car purchasing decision. Very cool. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Back to Mariette. We have an article on... Bird evolution, which is a, always a fascinating subject, and and the accepted wisdom that's developed over the last few decades is that birds did indeed evolve from dinosaurs, but it was also accepted that modern birds kind of evolved after the major extinction event of 65 million years ago. But this article says no. There are more than 10,000 bird species today, and they are extremely successful in so many different niches. 
And the accepted wisdom, as you said, was that they evolved in a, in a kind of a classic adaptation radiation pattern from the newly freed niches once all the dinosaurs were gone 65 million years ago. And it turned out, as it so often happens in science, that that is just too simple and cut and dried. There were some suspicions uh, based on some earlier fossil analysis that maybe birds were around when dinosaurs were around, and not just Archaeopteryx, which everybody's heard about, right? This is the 145-million-year-old transitional-style fossil that had teeth and a long tail like dinosaurs, and, and its pelvis was also shaped more like dinosaurs than the modern birds are today. But no, we speak of anatomic, anatomically modern birds that were discovered, um, some fossils uh, discovered before 65 million years ago, so 67 million years ago and 70 million years ago, a couple of fossil species, one called Vegavis and one called Tavornis. And these are partial skeletons that show unequivocally, really, that these creatures had anatomically modern um, tails, anatomically modern beaks. So if you saw one today, you would just, let's say you're not a bird expert, you just say, oh, look, there's a bird. There's a bird. It wouldn't jump out at you as being a very, very strange-looking bird. Like right. if you saw an Archaeopteryx, you'd say, what That's the weird. heck is that yeah. thing? Look at those teeth. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and these also jibe with recent molecular estimates that had been made by taking, you know, uh, research into the genes of various modern birds and calculating what is their rate of mutation. It's sort of, you could think of it as a clock ticking, right? There's a, there's a certain rate and calculating backward about when they might have diverged from a common ancestor. So we have a couple of lines of evidence, both physical evidence and, and this molecular evidence that indicate that birds indeed had arisen when dinosaurs were still walking. And as the, the article's author says, it's kind of fun to imagine a bird perched on some dinosaurs back. You know, in the past, we did not have that vision of the end of the dinosaurs period. And now we do. Now the question then, why did those birds make it through the dinosaur extinction? Right. So if all the dinosaurs died out, this leaves us, and they did, and they did, um, this leaves us with an intriguing mystery, mystery, uh, about birds. What was it about them? that enabled them to survive this mass extinction event and then keep on going to become the extraordinarily successful set of species that we see today with more than 10,000 kinds of them. And there is a hypothesis that the, the birds that made it through that evolutionary filter were the ones that just had the most uh, general ability to get food from different kinds of environments. They weren't really highly specialized. Right. Flexibility. Yeah. So remember, stay flexible and you too might be able to survive. So let's uh, let's wrap up as we always do. We talk about our 50, 100, and 150 years ago column compiled by Daniel C. Schlenoff. Hats off, Daniel, in the July 1860 issue of Scientific American. It's a particularly appropriate remembrance from back then in light of – it's like 100 degrees in New York City today. It is. And uh, this is what we had 150 years ago this month in Scientific American. There are thousands of people in New York who seem to have quite forgotten the use of plain water as a beverage. In certain quarters of the city, lager is the main staple of life, being for sale in almost every house. And the drink and even the food of all the men, women, and children, lager is king. 
Lager is one of our most modern institutions. Ten years ago, it was only a vulgar German word of unknown import. Then it was looked upon as an insipid Dutch beer. But finally, a majority perhaps will vote that it is the people's nectar. It's the people's nectar today out there.、Uh, certain witnesses have testified, and courts have decided that lager is not intoxicating. But in view of the fact that a pint of lager contains as much alcohol as an ordinary glass of brandy, it might be suspected that those witnesses had indeed been indulging in lager just at the time they needed their sober judgment. I love one thing I love about Scientific American is that even when discussing lager and alcohol content, the cooler heads prevailed among the editors, suggesting that you know, of course, that can't be right just because some people saw that they're you know believed that there was.、Um, There was no alcoholic content. There are no in,、uh, ability to inebriate you.、Um, really, if there's alcohol in there, there's going to be some must, kind of an effect. Yeah, it must have an effect. I, I love that about Scientific American. Well, let's hope that the cooler heads prevail today too. Please drink lots of water, folks. It's time to play totally bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which one is totally bogus. Story one: When a college football team wins a game right before an election, incumbents get more votes than when the team loses. Story two: Russian mathematician Grigory Perelman has declined an award worth one million dollars. Story three: Fifteen monkeys at a primate research facility in Tokyo escaped by flinging themselves from trees over a 17-foot-high electrified fence. And story four: A study in New York City found that men who lived within a five-minute walk of a pizza parlor were actually thinner than men who did not live close to pizza. Times up. Story one is true. College football wins apparently make people feel better about their community, and incumbents up for election get a two-point bounce. That's according to research in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And local college basketball wins translated to higher presidential approval ratings locally. For more, check out the July seventh episode of the Daily Siam podcast, Sixty Second Science. Story two is true. Mathematician Grigory Perelman has turned down a one million dollar prize for his work in proving the Poincaré conjecture, which you are far better off looking up than having me try to explain in ten seconds. Perelman has turned down other prizes in the past. He told the Clay Mathematics Institute, which chose him for the honor, that he didn't think his contribution to the problem was greater than others who had worked on it. Story three is true. The monkeys did bust out, but then they apparently didn't know what to do with their newfound freedom. So. They hung out right outside, and researchers got them to come back in by offering them peanuts. Or maybe they just wanted to show the scientists that they were living at the primate center by choice. All of which means that story four about guys who live near pizza being thinner is totally bogus. Because what is true is that a study done in Buffalo, New York, found that women who lived near supermarkets. Were thinner than women whose nearest food shopping opportunity was a convenience store. The work appears in the Journal of Planning, Education, and Research. The study also found that the greater the number of restaurants within a five-minute walk, the higher a woman's body mass index. So apparently, we are not just what we eat; we are where we eat.
Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks to Eric Olson for helping with the production this week. And get your science news at www.scientificamerican.com, where you can check out the interactive feature on the sometimes dirty truth about plug-in hybrids. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet every time a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Cyan, C-I-A-M. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Thank you.